Well, it's been a while since we were in Luke, but we're going back. We're going back into Luke, Luke chapter 6. It's been since the end of August. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Before we begin, let's pray. Oh, Father, we do humble ourselves before your word, knowing that it is our only source of life and hope to guide, to direct, to lead us in the way of salvation, that we might know you, know ourselves, know our world, know how we're to live before you, know how we're, what we're to believe we're so grateful for it. I thank you, Father, that you would help us to see our own hearts this morning by it, that we would understand our ways and that we would, we would be exposed and humbled by it. Please have mercy on us this morning and on me, your servant, who's here to speak on your behalf about what you've said to your people. So we ask for grace abounding in Christ. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin by reading Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through verse 5. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, with a passage like this, it would be easy for us to dive into a discussion on the Sabbath day and all the particulars around it and all the questions that arise from the issues of the Sabbath. But I want us to ask a deeper question this morning of this text, and I think this passage really hits a nerve in all of us. And the reason I say that is because even if we don't have issues with the Sabbath, like the Pharisees do here, we do struggle with religious pride, which is at the root of the issues here. And when we look at the heart of a Pharisee and and what's going on here, we can see how these, these roots are in us. They're in our hearts. Because any of us who've been Christian for, Christians for a while can begin to see that religious pride is just not an ancient pharisaical problem, but a contemporary problem in all of us. Since the middle of chapter 5 of this book in Luke, we have been introduced to these Pharisees. They haven't been around too long in the book so far, but they show up. And what's interesting is that when they do show up, they begin challenging Jesus with a series of questions. Jesus does something, they immediately have a question. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it this way? And they're constantly challenging Jesus and his ministry and his practices. And one of the things you'll notice is that they are watching him like a hawk. They are keen on looking at him and examining what he's doing and analyzing everything he's saying, everything he's, he's about to make sure 
He's doing everything just right. Because you know what would be a horrible thing for them? Is if he was to witness this person who claims to be from God, the Son of God, and they're hearing all this stuff about him, doing all these miracles, all this work, that if they're going to watch and see, is he a law keeper or a law breaker? Does he keep the traditions of the elders or not? Because after all, even the traditions of the elders, you know what those are based on? According to their mind, they're soundly based upon the law. Even here in our text, watch how it unfolds in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain and rubbing them with their hands. But, so they're doing something, and now notice what the Pharisees do. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus and his disciples are clearly just going about their business, aren't they? They're going about their business. They're hungry, it says. And so what do they decide to do? They decide to pluck some wheat berries and roll them in their hands, and so the the inner wheat berry, they could chew it and eat it. And in order for the Pharisees to catch, catch them, what they have to be is scrupulously observing them, watching them, waiting for them to, to notice something they might be doing wrong. They've got their, you know, their binoculars out, and they're watching every move. Uh-oh, look at them. Oh, they just did work. They, they just worked. Well, how did, why did they work? Well, they rolled some grain in their hands and threw it in their mouths. Can you believe it? So they're looking for the slightest error or mishap. And you see, one of, the, one of the, the fruits of religious pride is false religion. Religious pride practices false religion. And what false religion is, is a system of holiness and purity that is based on the law, but does not truly fulfill the law. And when it is embraced, it likes to catch and expose those who are not careful and as scrupulous as they are about it. It's a desire to observe and to be the one who discovers and uncovers what is wrong, uncovers the error, and to find that error. There's pleasure in that. Have you ever noticed how pleasurable it is to know something? To know something that another person doesn't know and to catch them in it and to realize their folly, there's pleasure in that. You know, I remember having some debates with dispensationalists many years ago, and I remember distinctly being able to catch them, being able to catch them in what they were saying as we had discussed, especially look at the book of Revelation. I would give a counter scripture and I'd say, well, what about this text? And you could see them watch them squirm, and I found great delight in that. And... And as, I, and as I did that and exposed them, it, it, all of a sudden it can feel pride welling up because I compare the two, and clearly you don't know the scriptures as well as I do. You, you, perhaps you should sit at my feet for a while and, and learn from me um, because the, it, clearly you have lots you could learn from this great man before you. But you know what that is? That's, that's the creation of a false religion, a religion based upon comparison. A religion that's based upon us looking, creating a standard, and then we feel really good about ourselves when we're above that standard. You know, we always feel good about ourselves when we we go above and beyond the expected standard, don't we? 
And so if you can create something, if you can create a standard and then you either meet it or exceed it, yeah. I don't care who you are, you feel good inside. And it's the beginning of pride. You know, the the reason this is false religion is because it begins from a basis of misunderstanding. Misunderstanding of what it means to love God and love others. And it gives us a sense, a false sense. Here's the other thing, a false sense of love for God. Because clearly he must be pleased with us to give us such enlightenment. Clearly he must be pleased with us to have to know the standard and uphold it. Clearly he must be pleased. Clearly he must have blessed us. Clearly God is with us because how else would you discover these great doctrines and and be able to articulate them the way you do? And this is precisely what the Pharisees were doing. They were catching Jesus and his disciples doing something they believe violated Scripture because after all, they know what happened in Numbers chapter 15. And this is interesting. Listen to this passage of Scripture in Numbers 15, 32 through 36. And you tell me when you hear this passage what you might think in relationship to the Sabbath and what they might have been doing here. Now, now pay attention. Listen carefully. Here's how it reads. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now you might think, wow, that seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? Well, it does, until you understand the context. You know, what preceded just before this statement was, was made in Numbers 15, Moses had just finished telling the people what God had commanded in regard to the Sabbath, in particular detail. And that if somebody breaks, and also he stated, if God said, if somebody breaks the law in this regard high-handedly or rebelliously or like in your face, you know, I don't care what you say. That kind of way, if they break the law in that way, they're to be stoned to death. He just finished telling them that. And so we have to understand that this guy isn't out there, you know, his family's not in great need and he needs to gather sticks out of love for his family. This guy is out saying, oh yeah, right. This is high-handed. I don't care what God says. I don't care. He says not to go gather sticks or do any work on the Sabbath. Well, watch me. So off he goes and does it. And so God says, okay, watch me. And so this man was set up as an example. But you could understand, if you don't get that context and know what's behind it, you could take a passage like that, you could isolate it, and you could say, you better get serious about the Sabbath. Right? And now all of a sudden, rubbing grain in your hands could be fairly similar to picking up sticks, if that's how you're thinking about it. Now, we have to understand that God gave the law 
as, as it says, and the basis of it is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the spirit that goes in and throughout it. But you know what religious pride does? Religious pride doesn't care about context. It only cares about appearing religious, about appearing holy before others, about appearing to be meeting or exceeding the standard. That's what religious pride cares about. It only cares to impress on the outside. So sure, we might have our families, um, you know, we might be severe and harsh with our families a little too often. Sure, we might be harsh with the kids. Sure, we might not always be helpful. Sure, we don't always have people in our homes. Sure, we don't, we don't always, you know, seek to love others in the, in the concrete details of life. But at least we're not like those stupid Christians who can't articulate justification by faith alone. At least we get the covenantal connections throughout Scripture. At least we know our constitutional rights and Christian freedoms. At least we're not so stupid as to think that, that, that to buy into that you know, liberal agenda. And on and on we go. It's easy for us to create a false standard, to create a false religion, and think that we meet it or exceed it and feel really proud about ourselves. And meanwhile, we're violating the heart of the law. That's what we do quite often. It's very easy for us to do this, have a real complete disconnect. And because of that disconnect, we can become incredibly impressed about our religion. Because we know God and we know his word. And that gives us a sense, a sense of feeling like, hey, God is pleased with me to reveal to me these doctrines. But as James said, pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself undefiled by the world. He doesn't say anything about our impressive knowledge or deep doctrines, our ability to articulate them. So basically, true religion is about love and purity, whereas false religion is about misusing the law and pointing out others' faults, having your binoculars and looking for all those people who just might be violators, and being able, once you find them, to spot them, to clearly articulate their issues and problems with their position. Well, connected to this, but going a little further, we need to notice that religious pride loves also the particulars of the law. And that's what we see in verse 2, basically. They saw what they're saying when they, they asked Jesus this question. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Why? So, you know, hit, there's the question. They're asking Jesus a question. Of course, there would be a question from them. Because they're so scrupulous about their Sabbath observance. And that they're always looking to catch people and they're law-breaking. They're, just, they're, they're watching you and your life and the things that you say. Ooh, yeah, that's not very accurate. Or, well, did you notice what they did? And they have questions. They follow up these questions because they're very particular about law observances in the details. You know, the... Their idea of righteousness was to think of ways in which one could break the law. How could one possibly break the law? And then to create other laws and regulations that would prevent one from breaking the law. 
And so, for example, the rabbis would discuss how far a person could walk on a Sabbath day before it was considered work. So one of them might say, you know, if I walk more than two miles, I break into a sweat. Another one might respond, is that it? Heck, I can walk four miles before breaking into a sweat. And back and forth they get about the time, when does it become work? When would it become work on a Sabbath day? And so they argue and articulate, and probably the wisest sage of them all would stand up and say, listen, here I think, I think it's about three miles. Okay, that, that finalizes it. Let's write it into our canon and make sure that a Sabbath walk is at the most, say, three miles. Okay, that's it. So now this, this becomes, and I, I'm not joking about this, they literally have a Sabbath mile. Um, you can only walk so far on the Sabbath. And this goes into everything. They ask questions about, you know, when a person um, turns on the lights and um, those lights, you know, create light in our midst, you know, would that be considered work? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a deep question. Let's think about that. Let's analyze the depths of that, because doesn't that just feel deep to ask such a question? And that's what they do. They get off on these little intricacies, and, and next thing you know, sure enough, it's in their canon, and it's a regulation and a tradition of the elders that must be kept, because that will prevent you from breaking the law. And on and on they go. You know, if you've ever watched the movie, Les Miserables, especially the one, I love the one with Liam Neeson in it. It was, I think, fantastic. You'll recall in there Inspector Javert. And I think he brilliantly played the part about a tyrant who, who overanalyzes and loves the particulars of law. I want to give a couple lines from the movie that just kind of express this heart, this mindset. In this one particular section, Javert says, Now, prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means? Uh, and Jean Valjean response, responds, uh, Yes, it means I'm free. To which Javert quickly retorts, No, hands him the yellow paper. Follow to the letter your itinerary, this badge of shame you wear until you die. It warns you, that you're a dangerous man. With a puzzled look, Jean Valjean says, I stole a loaf of bread. My sister's child was close to death, and we were starving. Then angrily, Javert snaps back, and you'll starve again unless you learn the meaning of the law. Javert was mean, cold, and intense, constantly looking for anyone who might violate the law and was incredibly proud that he never had. Likewise, religious pride loves the particulars of the law because we can feel good about ourselves when we measure up to the standard or exceed it. The heart of a Pharisee is really, the roots of it, they're in all of us. Every one of us, because all of us like to impress or exceed the standards. All of us feel good about ourselves when we do, like I mentioned earlier. So unless we see ourselves under the true light of God's word and crucify our pride on a regular basis, 
this pride begins to grow. Religious pride. And we become a Pharisee. But you know what we need to do? In order for that not to happen, for us to grow, for pride to fester, we need to crucify it. And we can crucify it by confessing it. We have to expose it to light or it grows, kind of like bacteria. What is bacteria like? Where does it like to grow? In warm, wet, dark places. That's where it loves to grow. But you expose it to the open air and to light, and what happens? It dies. It can't live. The same way with our pride. Our pride are just like our armpits. Really, think about it. Unless you scrub them with soap and water each day and put something in there that smells nice, they stink. (laughs) And so if you don't recognize and understand daily hygiene, well, you're not the most pleasant person to be around. And that's what pride is like. Unless you're scrubbing and soaping daily and exposing it to light and fresh air, it lives and thrives and grows. You need to kill it. It's a daily battle. You need to deal with it. It, it, it can well up in any of us. And the best things we can do when it's welling up in us is make fun of ourselves and make sure we get it exposed. Expose it to someone and let them know how proud you are or how proud you're becoming or how tempted you are towards the pride. Because otherwise, we just end up like a Pharisee who loves to make ourselves look really good by comparing ourselves to others who don't quite measure up. Because here's something religious pride also will not do. If pride gets in our hearts, here's the thing. Religious pride never takes pains to love others. Never. If we read in verse 3 and following here, look how Jesus answers them, and now he exposes this very point. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Have you not read about this story? He gives us this example of David in 1 Samuel 21.6, where David was sent on a mission by Saul with him and his men, and they left in haste, and they were hungry. They didn't have any food or anything with them, but they, were, they, they came near the tabernacle at this time, And they knew there was bread there, so David asked Abimelech, who was the priest at the time, if they had any bread. He didn't have any other bread available except the bread of presence, or the show bread on the table in the holy place. And so the priest asked if they were holy and clean. It's interesting that he asked him that. Are you holy? Are you clean? Have you defiled yourself in any way? In that particular case, have any of you been with any of your wives? And, and David says, no, we're, we, we haven't. We are clean. And so he gave them the bread. However, it's important to remember, who's to eat that bread? There's only one person who God says to eat that bread. It's the priest who's consecrated himself and eat it in the holy place. So it's clearly articulated. We can go back and we can look at the laws. The law of the Sabbath is clearly articulated. The law of the showbread is clearly articulated. And yet, the priest gave some to David out of mercy for him and his men because they were very hungry and in deep need. And so the point that Jesus is trying to get them to see is that God isn't pleased with their scrupulous 
observance of these particulars as much as he is about their love for him and for others. In fact, showing mercy to others is at the very heart of this commandment, the Sabbath. When you look at the Sabbath carefully, what God is concerned about is dealing with man's self-absorption, his lust and his greed. Here's how it reads in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's the commandment. God commands man to stop. Stop! And consecrate consecrate the day to him. Why? Well, not because he's desperate that his people give him one day, but rather because God knows that unless he commanded them to rest, their greed would drive them to exploit their sons and daughters, servants, livestock, and sojourners. You notice how he lists. He's very particular about listing here because he knows what they'll do. Yeah, you're to keep a Sabbath day, keep it holy. And then he looks around and he says, yeah, well, I'm not allowed to, but hey, wait a second. I've got sons, I've got daughters, I've got livestock. I've got all these. I could, I could use these people. And hey, they could do the work, but I'm not. And so he lists it very particularly. So basically, anyone and everything under your control, you and I, we as people, we will exploit them for our own gain. That's what our flesh wants. Unless God deals with our flesh, unless he gives us a new heart that desires what? Fundamentally, to love, to give, to bless. This is why Jesus, in the same account in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he adds this. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that God did not create man that he would have a Sabbath. He created the Sabbath because man needed to love his neighbor and know how to. The point is further made, further expressed by Jesus in the Matthew account in chapter 12 that was read for us. Chapter 12, verse 7, where he says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. And that's in the Matthew 12 passage that exact same things is happening. The Pharisees are pointing out that they're plucking the heads of the grain on the Sabbath day. And this is, that's one of the responses Jesus gives. If you understood what this meant, that I desire mercy more than sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. But religious pride could care less about mercy and love. It just cares about righteousness that comes from keeping certain letters of the law. Because then it can feel righteous. It can feel holy for, for not violating the standard. All you'd have to do today is if you drive a mile or two under the speed limit and you consciously did that, you'd feel really good about yourself. I did it feel really good and say, hey, I, I, I'm a keeper. I keep the law. And all you have to do is be very conscious of it. Drive a, a, one, a mile or two over 
be very conscious that you're breaking it. And it starts to kind of have a little, you know, doesn't make you too feel too good about yourself. Ah, I'm a breaker. I'm a lawbreaker. And this is what our hearts are like. It likes to constantly know, okay, what's the standard and how am I doing with the standard? Well, apart from understanding this, hey, guys, fundamentally, you know it's at the heart of the law. You know what drives it? Love for God and love for others. You're doing it because you love them. Now, the difference is, drive around, don't look at your dashboard and see, how could I drive in such a way that I could love everyone around me? That I could sh- express love to, no, you go first. Oh, back off. You go in. No, I'll let you turn. You're functioning in a different way. You're thinking about them. And now, you may or may not be around the speed limit, but your mind's not there. It's not around whether you went a mile above or a mile below. It was about loving others. And now you get, now you're actually obeying the law in that sense. Because why did they create it? They created it because they know what we're like as people. We need a standard to show how can I love my neighbors. And you know what else it would allow you to do? It would allow you to do 100 miles an hour down the freeway of someone who's in your seat dying if you had to get them to the hospital. If you love them and you were passionate about doing what's best for them, you would be, you, you would be doing something that you would be in, trying in balance to go as fast as you possibly could go while not trying to kill them or anybody else around you to save their life. Guess what you'd be doing? You would be keeping the law. Because you're, you're operating out of love for them. But the thing about a written standard like the law is that our flesh, our flesh will get off on its ability to measure up. We feel good about ourselves whenever we do. But we feel bad about ourselves whenever we don't. We long to meet expectations and have the approval of others. This is why religious pride is so easy to get caught up into and so easy to become like a Pharisee. You know what? When we do think of the Pharisees, you know what we often think? Well, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. But we should think. Think to ourselves, I'm a lot like them. And then that should lead us to humility and repentance. But ironically, we hate identifying with them. You know why we hate identifying them? Jesus rejected them. Jesus couldn't stand them. Jesus didn't like them. I like Jesus. I want to be on his side. I have nothing to do with those guys. I don't like those guys. And so you could read your Bible all the along. It's like, ooh, ooh, just like Israel. Israel in the wilderness. You can't even relate. Ooh, I can't even relate. I, if that was me and I saw God on the mountain, I would never do something like that. These guys are crazy. You know, that, and we distance ourselves. We line ourselves up with the righteous and the good guys. And we're, we're always the hero in the story, aren't we? Never the villain. And so we distance ourselves from them, and we can't, we can't understand. How could you be like this? But you know what happens? As long as we don't identify with them in any way and push them out there and say, ooh, those are nasty people, it's never going to have the effect it should have on our hearts. We should look at them and say, Lord, you know what I find in my heart? I'm just like a Pharisee. I've, I, I cultivate religious pride in my own heart, and it comes out in false religion. 
It comes out in me trying to impress others. It comes out in me being meticulous and, and scrupulous about the letters of the law. It comes out in me being not concerned about others, people, and about you and loving you and loving them, but rather it comes out in me just being concerned about showing myself as pure, as righteous, as having it all together. And boy, did we ever learn the wrong lesson. We should, we should look to them and, and that should break our hearts. We're, we're to see ourselves and to see our sin, and to see that we don't measure up, and say, oh, Lord, woe is me. Oh, please forgive me. Forgive me, Father. I I see in my own heart, I see this. I see the pride. I see false religion. I see it, and expose it, and confess it. And because that's a beautiful place to be, because you know what the Lord does? He comes to you, and He heals you, and He blesses you, and He cleanses you. And why is that? Because Jesus loves repentant sinners. He hates religious pride. He hates it. He hates anybody who thinks they've got it all together. They have no need of Him. Get away. But He loves. He's delighted to receive you. If you humbly confess your sins and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, I see that in me. I see it in me. Just like those people in so many ways. Oh, Lord God, have mercy on me. Oh, my son, I do. I love you. I delight in you. He pours out grace upon you. And you know what happens when he pours out grace upon your heart? Your heart's filled with joy. You're filled with love. And you get up from your knees and you go and love others. And you're gracious to them and they've been gracious to you. But you know what also happens over time? You can become proud again. And the heart of the Pharisee can begin to develop because, wow, you start loving God and loving others in the way you haven't before. And hang on, I'm coming. you start becoming proud. Proud of the way, look at the way I'm loving, loving God and loving others. And, and you get on this, this, this proud little journey. And next thing you know, you're becoming more and more full of yourself and more and more proud of how much you're loving and how, oh, man. And you become more scrupulous. And now all of a sudden, these tendencies come back again. Uh-oh. Because remember, pride is a lot like bacteria. It likes to grow in warm, dark places. But when you expose it and scrub it and clean it and present it to the light, it's cleansed. But don't think you're done because this is the cycle. When you're healed, when you're cleansed, when you're washed, when you're raised up and God gives you grace and your heart's filled with grace, you want to love and give and serve. But then you can become proud because of all your loving and giving and serving. You've got to continually see yourself in the Pharisee and understand that religious pride is easy. And let God have his way with you and be continually coming to him in rep- as a repentant sinner. Because those who, that's what Jesus loves. The humble, the broken, the contrite. That's who he loves. That's who he heals. That's who he raises up. That's who he blesses. That's who he delights in. Be that person. But you'll never be that person until you first see yourself in the Pharisee. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that your word can expose, can cut, can show like a mirror the inner parts of our soul. Father, please help us to see our own sinfulness, our own religious pride, 
our own hypocrisy, the way that we're like Pharisees. And may that break our hearts and humble us before you so that we would confess to you and receive grace and receive your cleansing and receive your joy and then rise up and just spread it everywhere. So, Father, have your way with us, we ask in Jesus. Amen.